0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Well, the big bet is, of course, on the uh, central bank trade these days. And the bet has been that ever more stimulus will be coming our way. Now the Fed, uh, ready to meet next week, seems to be leaning the other direction. Ellen Zentner is the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley, and she's been nice enough to come in at this early hour to tell us that uh, she predicted this all along.
2: Uh, Yeah, it's not nice to gloat, Mike. (laughs) Uh, But Tom's
1: not here. You can gloat. It's okay.
2: Good, 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 because he would tamp that down quickly. (laughs) Uh, But I think, you know, even we have to acknowledge or have had to acknowledge over the past couple of weeks that the probability of a December rate hike has risen. I mean, the rhetoric was clearly moving in that direction. Policymakers feeling more comfortable with the progress they're making on their mandates. They're getting stir crazy. They don't like going a full year without (laughs) hiking rates. Certainly that was not the definition of gradual they had in mind. Um, yet the data in just the past week, and Janet Yellen said that to the extent that the data continue to confirm the outlook, another rate hike could be warranted, but the data looks pretty questionable going into this meeting, it's unfortunate timing going into this September meeting, but I think markets are right to have lowered the probability that they hike in September.
1: Your call has been no move until 2017, and everybody focuses on that. The Fed folks out in Jackson Hole were all saying, that's the wrong way to look at it. It doesn't matter when we raise rates unless we wait forever, but it's the path. It's the, it's the how fast we get to where we're going that really should matter to the economy and to bond markets.
2: Well, and they're absolutely right. Um, and I've spent a good deal of time with uh, our clients in emerging markets uh, a, a few weeks ago. Um, and emerging markets are, are laser focused on what the Fed does, and they're not necessarily uh, nervous a, about uh, an imminent hike uh, if it comes with a promise that the Fed is not tone deaf and the the path will be lower, slower, to a, a lower end game, if you will. And I think that the Fed will start to set up for that. Um, at this September meeting, I think we not only get uh, some mark-to-market of their growth forecast this year because the poor first half is going to pull those numbers down, uh, but uh, several very important policymakers uh, have, you know, been laying the ground for work for look, there are structural issues or persistent headwinds that are persisting longer than we thought, um, and potential growth is probably lower, and therefore you need to lower your associated. Uh, neutral rate uh, that, that would be associated with that lower potential growth. And so I think they do show us a lower, slower path. This will also be interesting because it's the first time we get 2019 forecasts. Have you even thought about 2019? <laughs> Does anyone have any clue what's going to happen in 2019?
1: Fran, where are we going to be just, in 2019?
3: 20, I don't know. ECB actually gave some uh, pretty discouraging forecasts for 2018, right, because they had to lower inflation was, I think, 1.7, but they had to lower their growth forecasts. Overall, Ellen, do we just look at the markets? And if the markets don't price in a Fed hike, then it means it won't happen.
2: Well, I think there's that's always the chicken and egg question. Uh, so if the Fed is data dependent... Um, and the the market is looking at the same data the Fed is, then the Fed just has to be careful that they communicate around what the data mean to them. If the market sees the data the same way the Fed does, then it should lead market probabilities higher or lower depending on the ebb and flow of the data. And only unless the market has it wrong, then does the Fed push back. Uh, And we have not seen pushback on the low probability the market is placed on September because the data has just not been definitive. Only half of the members we knew from the July minutes uh, said that the conditions warranted another hike. The other half weren't yet convinced. And I'm not sure that we've gotten enough data since July to convince them to go at this meeting.
1: Well, you mentioned that they're getting antsy because more and more of them are coming out and saying maybe there are some issues with financial market distortions. But if the markets don't let them move, they can't fix that. And it's the market's interest for them not to move.
2: Yeah, but I don't think this is the markets not letting them move. I think it's the markets have read the data correctly. I mean, the the probabilities uh, have risen for a December hike. And I'm, I'm not sure that they'll get too frothy on December until we get past election uncertainty. I think that that will hold back markets betting for a rate hike in December. Uh, But I think the markets have raised the probability and heard the Fed that you would like to go this year. And it's just, does the data help the Fed get that open door or not?
3: And we saw quite a big move in treasuries, especially the the longer uh, maturities yesterday on the back of ECB. Do you worry that bond traders are a little bit complacent
2: of what happens to Fed from now until December? Uh, I'm not so worried about complacency for this year. I think like Dudley, um, I would worry about complacency of the overall path. I mean, the, the Fed... The Fed doesn't see eye to eye with markets on what the future path of rates is. The Fed has been coming down, down, down to the more pessimistic view of the market uh, in terms of how much they can get done. Um, But I think that's where uh, when Dudley talked about the markets being complacent, I think it was more that he was talking about the path priced in through the end of 2017, not necessarily about a rate hike This year, Uh, and so I think that's more of what worries the Fed—that the market is just never going to price in that they're going to be able to do anymore.
1: Yeah, but do they have a credibility problem because they keep coming out and saying we're getting closer to raising rates, and and then something always happens and they don't?
2: Well, so that is there are drawbacks, there are benefits and drawbacks to being data dependent. Um, Being data dependent means that that you're naked, right? And if the data is overwhelmingly positive. Uh, then it's it's obvious that, that you must move, and the bond market will give you that open door because probabilities uh, will rise. But it also means that any time the data bobbles, uh, it also is going to make it very difficult for markets to get frothy about expecting another rate hike uh, because the, the data isn't uniformly good. I think in this slow growth environment, data dependency, dependency can be very tough.
1: Well, you don't think very quickly that maybe at one rate move would send a message to the markets that you can't take us for granted?
2: That's just not how the Fed operates, right? The, the, the Fed uh, will hike rates to tighten financial conditions. You don't want more tightening than you bargained for and surprising the markets. you think the is markets sure, would panic
1: in that case? Well,
2: I think that it would just be bizarre. It would be an absolutely bizarre move that the, that the the Fed would surprise markets without preparing them for a rate hike. They would push back and basically say, you're wrong. There's a better chance that we go. And then the markets would raise the probability ahead of the meeting.
1: Ellen Zetner still with us. She's the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. And she's been making the point that this is a data-dependent Fed and the data have not been good. Of late, but does that mean the U.S. economy is in trouble, Ellen, with a disappointing jobs report and the ISM numbers, as you mentioned, that didn't go so well?
2: I wouldn't characterize it as an economy in trouble. Um, I think that uh, growth uh, this year is tracking lower than expectations. It's more in line with the ours, but we tend to be lower than than consensus. It's certainly tracking lower than the Fed's expectations. Um, but I think what the, what the more hawkish on the committee, let's say, could, could hold on to is, you know, okay, let's shut the door on first-half growth. So it averaged around 1 percent growth. There were some transitory factors in there, energy drag, dollar drag, that are probably coming off in the second half to some extent. So let's just look at third-quarter tracking uh, and beyond, which is, which is looking pretty strong for third quarter. That could get some of the more hawkish members Uh, uh, on the FOMC to use that argument to say, let's get another rate hike in uh, this year. The data ebb and flow, right? And so all we know is that over the past week with auto sales rolling over, ISMs declining, uh, jobs not so great report, um, you know, it's just the ebb and flow. None of that looks too good. Maybe it just means that we started off uh, uh, spicy, to use Peter's term from earlier on, on Bloomberg survey, surveillance. Uh, maybe we started off the quarter spicy and we fizzled a bit. Um, but I certainly wouldn't call it an economy in trouble. None of the leading indicators say that, you know, we're, we're headed south per se. It's just the economy is sluggish, and it doesn't look like it's overheating. And the inflation data continues to run below the Fed's goal with with very, very low or record low inflation expectations. And there's just nothing there that, that would tell me, that would make me, me prescribe another rate hike to them.
3: Uh, but Ellen, how do you look at the uh, labor market, because actually that's pretty strong, um, you know, and and it's difficult to reconcile lower inflation with with a strong labor market. Yeah, so I think
2: the labor market, um, you know, the Fed's labor market conditions index sort of takes all the pieces from the employment report, all the labor market data, and puts it into one nifty index so we can say, well, was it a good report or was it a bad report? Do we say it's good just because there's headline job growth? And, and the, that labor market conditions index has now declined in seven of the past eight months. So while we get strong headline job growth, the overall rate of hiring is still very sluggish compared to the prior cycles uh, you know, layoffs remain low, which are helping that net job gain that we get each month look good. Um, but I, but I think there's still some room to go there. But that's not what, what you know, rubs policymakers the wrong way, right? They're pretty confident on the labor market front. They think they've been d- making great progress on that front. It's the inflation front. Uh, when inflation expectations are falling and core inflation is low, it strikes terror in the hearts of policymakers. Every prescription they've learned, every theory they've learned, tells them you do not touch rates in that environment.
1: Are their theories right? I mean, seven years on, sti- extraordinary stimulus, rates essentially still almost zero, and there's no inflation. Why not try something different? There's a theory that if you raise rates, that instills confidence in the economy and uh, increases return on capital to businesses, which then might invest, and then you might get something out of
2: it. Yeah, well, I think there's this perception that the Fed just does not want to raise rates. They want to raise rates, but they want the conditions to warrant a rate hike. Um, and with growth so sluggish, it, it keeps them constantly back-footed. Um, and so I don't think they're going to buy into that um theory that, you know, you raise raise rates and, and it will come, the sort of build it and they will come theory. Um, you know, I think what we do with policymakers oftentimes is we give them this halo effect, and we think they just have the answers and know everything. And none of them have practiced in a post-financial crisis world. All of them are trying to put monetary policy theory into practice, and they're feeling their way in the sand with their toes. Uh, And some of those decisions go well and some don't, but they're just doing the best that they can. Um, And we've seen with Jackson Hole, you were there, Mike, the theme at Jackson Hole was let's rethink all of this. Maybe we need new policy frameworks. And so I think it does niggle them that maybe this is, you know, unprecedented times and we need unprecedented monetary policy, but policymakers move at a glacial pace.
1: Well, uh, unfortunately for us, we're out of time. But uh, fortunately, uh, having Ellen Zetner on is not unprecedented. (laughs) And she Mm -hmm. will be back. But thank you for coming in this morning. Ellen Zetner is the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. And uh, she has not been someone who forecasts a Fed rate move anytime Mm soon. Libby Cantrell. Is Pimco's executive vice president uh, keeps track of all things politics, but Libby, you know where I'm going. Uh,
4: I absolutely do. We like, are
1: going. We are going to start night. with Thursday night football, the opening of the uh, football. Did you stay up and watch?
4: I did. I did, and I, I'm wa- I, 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 I was. I was debating whether I was going to wear a 13 jersey or a 22 jersey because CJ Anderson had a great night, but Trevor Simeon was. Was, did a great job and definitely exceeded expectations. I
1: had me? to. I had to sleep, so I, I missed. I woke up to Muhammad Alaryan, uh, <laughs> he's sending me messages going, "Great comeback!" I, I was like, uh, "For which team?" Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so Denver Broncos twenty-one, Carolina Panthers twenty. Now we have covered that. Are you, are you, one more question: Are you satisfied with Trevor Simeon as the uh, Broncos replacement for Peyton Manning?
4: I am I am I think he again exceeded expectations I think he looked really good. he can also run the ball too so i um I was impressed I mean early days but 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 definitely a good a good opening
1: early days and there's a transition line for you um <laughs> in, in terms of exceeding expectations, the Republican nominee for president uh seems to be doing that right now. he has some. No, no discernible foreign policy or domestic policy plans. He seems to backtrack on uh, all of his proposals on an almost daily basis now and yet uh, has closed the gap with Hillary Clinton. What's going on?
4: Yeah, I, mean, I think that in terms of the national polling, it's not necessarily surprising that um, the the gap has narrowed. She had really a, almost a historically high post-convention bounce, and it didn't look like it was necessarily going to um, you know, be sustainable. Uh, I think that the, the question, though, is it will continue to narrow or will it plateau around sort of a three to four uh, percent lead, which she has which she has right now. I think, you know, in addition to national polling, we're looking at state polling because. You know this this presidency and and this race is going to be dictated just by a number of swing states. Um, so I think that even you know, kind of more pressing, probably from the Clinton perspective, are the recent numbers that are coming out of Ohio and Florida. She still has commanding leads in, in key swing states such as Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Michigan. Um, but she's she's definitely going to be focusing on Ohio and Florida because those are must wins for Trump, um, and she's going to try to obviously you know take that away from from him.
1: Well, uh, somebody said if this election is about Donald Trump, she wins. If it's about Hillary Clinton, he could win. So what's it about right now?
4: yeah yeah and I think you know it's um I mean, she, she obviously there was there was sort of a slew of, of, of you know negative news around her um, in august. she was quite quiet because she was you know fundraising and he and he's gotten to be you know much more disciplined. I think that the next inflection point sort of from a market's perspective from the public's perspective is going to be the debates and the first debate is september twenty sixth um, unlike this you know the the, the recent um, forum that was on NBC, on NBC this will be a 90-minute uninterrupted debate where you know, the candidates will really have to dive into to policy details. I think to your earlier point, you know, we haven't really seen a lot from Donald Trump, and he won't be able to sort of rely on the commercial breaks um, or the sort of the headlines in order to evade, you know, really sort of substantive policy questions. So I think that the you know next inflection point is September 26, and so watch then watch the polls after that um, and, and see sort of how they come out because I think that the, that should be much more revealing than what
1: we're seeing now. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Michael McKee in New York. Tom Keene taking a uh, couple of days off. Uh, thank you for lending him your days, friend. Very nice of you.
3: I hope he's rested when he comes back.
1: Tanned, rested, and ready. We, we <laughs> shall see. Uh <laughs> he's, terrifying. He's, he's probably uh, trying to save his strength for the political campaign ahead. 60 days to go, and I'm sure most Americans think that's 59 and a half too many Libby Cantrell is the executive vice president and a political analyst for Pacific Investment Management Company, and she is with us today. And before the break, Libby, we were talking about the importance of the debates, and I wonder— Uh, To a certain extent, how important they are in the sense that are there a lot of people who are yet to be convinced who could be maybe convinced to to vote for Donald Trump or is his support, you know, really hard among those people who will vote for him? And the real story is, can Hillary get her supporters out to vote?
4: Yeah, I, mean, I think that that that's definitely a dynamic. But I also, I mean, it's it's quite surprising to us given how well we think we know these candidates. But the number of undecided voters this election cycle is actually quite high. Just if you look at you know recent um, you know, compared to re- recent election cycles, so sort of ten to twenty percent of voters are undecided. Which means that you know, the the polling could be more volatile. But that that things like the debates actually could make a, quite a big difference. So I, yeah to me is is this going to be Hillary's task to try to convince some of those maybe moderate Republicans who feel uneasy with Donald Trump to come over and vote for her? But I think more importantly, it's going to be trying to convince those independents who really haven't made a decision yet. Um, even if that that might be amazing to, to some of us, given how well we feel like we know these candidates.
1: Well, how does it? Uh, I mean, There's been a lot of talk about Hillary working on the ground game and Donald Trump uh, not working on the ground game. But he hadn't yeah. had a ground game. He hadn't had a get-out-the-vote effort at all since he began running so does it really matter
4: Yeah, I mean, that is, he is, he's definitely um, calling sort of conventional wisdom into question in lots of different respects. I mean, from a ground game perspective, from sort of a state infrastructure, field office, um, registering people to vote. I mean, he, his numbers are really paltry. And I think it's the latest is he has 88 field offices in swing states versus uh, Hillary Clinton, who has almost uh, 300. So um, he hasn't really built out that state infrastructure. You know, he hadn't really done that for the primary either and, and Ted Cruz of course had and that didn't really prove to be decisive. I mean, the, the general election's a little bit different um, because the primaries are already speaking to folks who are already galvanized to vote. Whereas, you know, the general election voters, and especially some of the folks that Donald Trump is appealing to, they may not even be registered voters. So they, this is the, you know, getting them registered, getting them to be early voters is going to maybe even be more critical. Um, and we haven't seen him make those make those investments. But I think that the the, the, the lesson I have learned is you can't underestimate Donald Trump. And I think a lot of folks who follow Washington have, you know, sort of constantly underestimated him and then, you know, have been sort of surprised. Uh, That's probably the the, –
3: yeah, that's absolutely spot on, Libby. My problem is that I'm fed up with knowing about the candidates. I want to listen to policy. I want to really make sure that I understand what they're standing for. When is that going to come through?
4: Yeah, and, and you know, this is really Hillary Clinton's strength, right? I mean, if you go to her website, she has policy position papers and white papers, and she wants to talk about the policies. I think she was getting frustrated with Matt Lauer a few days ago because, you know, she didn't feel like he was allowing her to do that. Um, Donald Trump doesn't really have a policy operation. I mean, I think that's sort of the other thing that is usurping conventional wisdom. Um, a lot of his folks in his policy shop have reportedly are not working with him anymore. So um, I think that the debate Debates again will really shine a spotlight on on potentially that deficiency. Um, but again, don't underestimate Donald Trump. But those are the, the debates are really going to allow for the candidates to get into the details of their policy positions. Um, and so you should hopefully be sort of satiated <laughs> come September 27th after the first debate, which is on September 26. Uh,
3: Libby, when I'm so I'm sitting here in London. Uh, how do Americans vote? We have very strict rules in London about how much you can spend on the campaign when you can start campaigning in a general election. Do people in the U.S. vote on personality? Do they vote on policy? Or is 2016 just different?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult thing to, to say um, you know I think that you know don't underestimate Americans I mean, Americans do care about the policies they don't just you know they don't just care about personality but you know per- personality you know is important I think one of the reasons why George W Bush um, you know, beat Al Gore although you know very very um, marginally in 2000 was because people had this perception that George W Bush you Bush could get a beer with um, so you know personality definitely matters but people want to feel Feel, you know, comfortable with their commander in chief that these folks have the nuclear codes. They're making incredibly important policy decisions, sort of a statement of the obvious, and that they are, you know, that they know that um, they know that sort of the policy details. So I think it's sort of a, a combination, but definitely again, 2016 is calling into conventional wisdom into question for sure.
1: Even with the, the questions about who's leading the presidential race, there seems to be a unanimity of at least uh, newspaper headlines suggesting that Democrats are winning the race for the United States Senate. How do you read it at this point? Uh, if, if even if Donald Trump wins, do Democrats still have a very good chance to take the Senate?
4: I don't, you know, I don't think so necessarily. So the Republicans just going into this election cycle, sort of regardless of the the Donald Trump phenomenon, were facing a pretty challenging cycle of the 34 seats up for reelection, 24 being defended by by Republicans of those 24, seven in states that President Obama has won twice. So it was going to be a difficult election cycle regardless. But, But the real vulnerable races are in swing states. So they're in the Ohio's, the Florida's, the Pennsylvania's, the North Carolina's, the New New Hampshires and if there is really big turnout say for Donald Trump in those states then Donald Trump will get to the White House but likely the the Republicans will be able to retain the Senate and vice versa if Hillary Clinton has big turnout in those in those swing states then likely the Senate goes back to to being democratic so it's sort of you know how goes the White House so goes the Senate um, meaning that if Donald Trump is you know is able to get to the White House uh, then the will likely the, the Republicans will be able to to retain the Senate, albeit with a pretty slim majority. And as Mike, you know, the 60-vote filibuster-proof majority is the most important in the Senate, and neither party would get that.
1: Yeah, that's not going to happen. What about uh, the House? Uh, nobody thinks that the Republicans no. will lose the House, but how many seats
4: could they lose? Well, I think Nancy Pelosi thinks that the Republicans might, oh, might, might lose that. She's hoping. She's hoping. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's as we've talked about because of the congressional redistricting, because of the historically high Republican majority that the the Republicans enjoy in the House right now, you know, very unlikely that they lose the 30 seats that they would have to lose in order to lose a majority. But probably, you know, losing 10, 15, maybe even 20, again, depending on what the turnout is for Hillary Clinton, um, is is certainly feasible. So Speaker Ryan, very likely to stay Speaker, um, but with a a smaller majority going into 2017.
1: At this point, we're just after Labor Day when people are supposed to start paying attention. Uh, is it the debates that are going to determine this election? You said they're really important. Or could uh, you know, could a, a terrorist event or something like yeah. that really change perceptions? Or do people have a pretty good picture of who these candidates are?
4: Yeah, well, I think, um, again, just given that historically high undecided margin, you know, debates are going to be important. I think other new information that, you know, might come out on the Hillary Clinton side or the Donald Trump side, for that matter, um, might also be might also be definitive. But there's also a chance, of course, of what, you know, people refer to as an October surprise. So something like, you know, a terrorist attack or um, more details about the content of, say, Hillary Clinton's emails or, you know, more revelations about, say, Donald Trump, connection to, you know, alleged connection to Russia or what have you. So, um, you know, things like that, I think just, again, given just the unconventional nature of this election, that could actually, you know, move move voters. Um, so pay attention to the polling right after September 26th, after those that, that crucial first debate. October 9th, October 19th are the other dates of the debates. So those are going to also be important. But then again, pay attention to the swing state polling because that's going to be really ultimately definitive um, of the outcome of the White House.
1: And as Libby would tell you, pay attention to the Denver Broncos this year after last night's big comeback win. Libby Cancel, uh from PIPCO, thank you very much. Our uh, political analyst and Denver Broncos football analyst. Uh, Fran doesn't know that, but uh, she, she has a side job, Fran. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust
0: in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.
1: Uh, We were sailing along with losses in equities, but not much movement in the bond market until Eric Rosengren, the president of the Boston Fed, came out with his hawkish comments. Uh, This is a man who had been on the dovish side of the ledger for quite some time, but now suggests that the Fed is in danger of falling behind the curve because, in his words, we may already be beyond full employment. Gary Stern is the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. And, Gary, this seems like quite a turnaround for a Fed bank president. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where, um, although I'm told reliably he did not actually say it, but the famous quote from John Maynard Keynes of uh, when the facts change, I changed my mind, where the, the the economic facts changed and shortly before a meeting you suddenly found yourself rethinking your your beliefs?
5: Um not, not that I recall to the extent that uh, apparently Eric Rosengren has reassessed the situation. Uh, and I'm a bit surprised not because I, I think we have to try to classify President Rosen, Rosengren as a hawk or a dove, but because it seems to me the labor market has been reasonably strong for a sustained period of time. And so I don't understand why you would you know, belatedly come to the conclusion that perhaps we're at or maybe even beyond full employment. Uh, we've, we've had very substantial employment gains on average for several years now. Uh, if you look around the country, there are many labor markets, not all, but many labor markets where anyone who wants a job can have one. May not be, you know, their dream job or they may not get paid as much as they think they ought to. But in many markets, if you want a job, you can have one. I think that's been the case for some time. Uh, so you know, some in, in ways, much of this is to me anyway is is not news. Um, now, of course, you you know, you can get surprised if you um, get a de- major departure. Uh, for example, you know, if consumer spending seems to be trending up, and you get one or two months of uh, consecutive months of weakness that that could force you to change your views pretty quickly. But in this case, as I said, the labor market seems to have been consistently healthy for an extended period of time.
3: So, Gary, does that mean if you had to vote on September 21st, would you vote for a hike?
5: Uh, Yes, I would. uh, Because I uh, for for the reasons I basically expressed, uh, I think the economy is fundamentally sound. I think we are certainly close to f- full employment, and the employment gains have been substantial over time. And, you know, the other part of the Fed mandate is price stability, and that too has been achieved. So the question seems to me to be what, what, how do we conduct policy from here uh, but, to sustain our accomplishments?
3: But wage inflation is not as strong as people were expecting, and I guess the, the the question should be: Do you fear that the UK, the U.S. economy overheats if you don't hike in September?
5: I don't think uh, I don't think overheating is imminent by any stretch of the imagination, and that's why the Fed, you know, still does have some leeway with regard to timing. Um, and I agree with with the observation that that perhaps wage inflation has not been. Uh, as rapid as one might have expected given the uh, state of the labor market. But I would be a little cautious about emphasizing that because uh, the idea of cost-push inflation uh, was very popular in the 1970s. It was subsequently, I would say, fully discredited. Uh, I don't think I would put special emphasis on what's happening to wages or broader measures of compensation and try to conclude how, how inflation is likely to perform. Uh, I think uh, ultimately what happens to inflation is up to central banks. Uh, the Federal Reserve, the Euro- European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and so forth. And uh, compensation is obviously important uh, because it's an ingredient in consumers' ability to purchase goods and services. I don't think it's so important when it comes to inflation. Uh, We are speaking with Gary Stern, the uh, former Minneapolis Fed Bank president,
1: and we're talking about uh, how the Fed uh, seemed to be setting us up for a rate increase. Janet Yellen, Stanley Fisher out in Jackson Hole, and then along came the August payrolls report. And I wonder if... um, You can have too much data dependence or you pay too much attention to the markets, uh, Gary, uh, because it seems like uh, the minute you get a bad economic report, the markets say uh, the Fed's not going to raise rates, uh, futures odds go way down, and then everybody uh, writes off the Fed
5: and they back off. Well, there does seem to be some circularity to that uh, along the lines you're describing, Mike. But you know the the Fed is. It, I think it goes beyond that. The Fed is a fundamentally cautious organization. They don't they don't uh, make an effort to you know try to get out in front of things or surprise people when unless they have to. So uh, I think that and I think that inherent caution has served the institution and has served the country well over time. So I'm not being critical of that, but I think they have gotten themselves. Today, to a point where uh, data dependence has put them in a bit of a straitjacket, and it's because the data are, in some sense, inherently erratic, and I'm not talking about revisions on a month-to-month basis. I'm just talking about the nature of the incoming data. You know, in any given month, you might get a strong employment report, a good housing report, a mediocre report on consumer spending, and a weak report on durable goods orders or something. Okay. What are you to do with all that? Uh, Gary Stern is with us from the Minneapolis Fed, and
1: uh, Gary, I'll go back to, to what I was saying about the markets. And it, there's a perception that the Fed is being sort of led around by the markets these days.
5: Yeah, I, I think there is that perception. I think you're you're right about that. I, I and there may be there may be some truth to it, but I, I suspect that's exaggerated. I think what the Fed is being led around by uh, is it's so-called data dependency, and they they really are, as best I can judge, dedicated to that. And um, it seems to me that, you know, that inherently puts them in a bit of a straitjacket because of the nature of the data, uh, which are always, almost always mixed, by which I mean some series come in strongly in any given month, some series come in uh, and give you a weak reading, some come in uh, kind of mediocre. I don't know what to what you make of that if you're a policymaker. Um, sometimes, as we saw the last few months in the labor market, very strong gains in June and July. And then um, a gain that was satisfactory, in my view, but below expectations for August. And that you know, that seems to have affected market participants, but it also seems to have affected Fed policymakers. And and I think the Fed needs to find a way to get beyond the straitjacket that seems to be being imposed by data dependence. Uh, and I think I don't think it's impossible to do that, but I think it takes some thought and some effort to do that and some communication right. with market participants as well.
3: Gary, so you made your point very clear. You want the Fed to gradually tighten starting from September. Do you not worry about dollar strength?
5: No, I mean it. Obviously, there could be the there could be further dollar strength coming from that. Although you you might argue that a lot of that is priced in one way or another. Hard to hard to know in advance. Um, but let's suppose that the dollar does strengthen, other things equal. Uh, that would uh, slow the pace of economic activity in the U.S. But it wouldn't, in my judgment, be profound. After all, the U.S. of all the major economies is probably the least dependent. On foreign trade, exports or imports. And, and so I wouldn't exaggerate uh, the consequences of uh, further strengthening of the dollar. And as I said, some of that might be priced in.
1: Gary Stern, former president of uh, the New York, I mean, the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. Sorry about that. I'm thinking of Paul Volcker, you know, went to Minneapolis, came back to New York. And ended up uh, down in Washington. Next week, the Fed meets, September 21st. And uh, Scarlet Food, Tom Keene and I, will have full coverage for you of the Fed's decision and Janet Yellen's news conference uh, beginning at uh, 1 p.m. Uh, and then d- the decision at 2, and she will speak, the chair will speak at 2.30. and world will be paying attention.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg
1: Surveillance Podcast Subscribe and listen
0: to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.